Cooper, the keeper, ready for the next episode of the Mix Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. This is episode number 256. And with that number, I look back at kind of an unusual game for the U.S. Women's National Team. Their 256th game in the history of the team was played in fall 2000. It was one of their friendlies following the 2000 Olympics. The Americans lost that game 3-1 to Canada uh, in Columbus, Ohio, one of just three all-time wins by Canada over the U.S. women in their all-time series. Kind of, kind of a significant game. And, of course, Christine Sinclair did score in that game at you know the age of, uh, yeah, she would have been only 17. Anyway, moving on. Uh, long chat today with freelance soccer reporter Bo Duray, who's covered women's soccer for close to 20 years. Uh, we talked about the news that broke this week, that the mediation between U.S. soccer and the U.S. Men's National Team Players Association has broken down. And also the announcement uh, from late last week that former U.S. Women's National Team defender, current ESPN analyst Kate Markraff, has been named the first ever GM of the U.S. Women's National Team, uh, which means she will be in charge of choosing who the next coach will be. And then I took a short trip down NWSL Stream's memory lane with Daniel Maligari, who used to serve as analyst for all the Washington Spirit YouTube streams, and who still occasionally works as an analyst for the NWSL Streams on Yahoo Sports. All right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Bo Duray, as I like to say, the very French pronunciation a long time <laughs> soccer beat reporter very long time as Bo likes to say Bo I think it's so funny that we had already scheduled this chat to talk about like USA legal issues and and compensation and Kate Margraff and then boom yesterday we get the mediation is broken up and you get the kind of very terse statement from each side of the table. So I'm kind of, a, I'm, I'm kind of glad that I already had you set to chat about that because as someone who has followed and covered the U.S. women's national team for such a long time, um, I thought, you know, I'd, I'd really like to hear your perspective. Well, it, it certainly made a, for a lot of noise and I've been, you know, I've been, deeply following Twitter for a couple of other professional things that having nothing to do with soccer right now. But then of course, all this comes out and it's just the, the noise of misinformation that comes out from this is just, it's so mind boggling. Um, that's a great phrase, the noise of misinformation. So, so what is the misinformation that's out there so we can dispel that at least for the listeners of the mix zone? Well, oh boy, where do we start? Um, <laughs> because you, you know, now you have to bear in mind that a lot of it isn't directly emanating from either side. Uh, although, you know, the U.S. soccer statement they put out a couple of weeks ago was, yeah, it was cherry picked data. Uh, and yeah. A lot of what you hear from the women's side is cherry picked data. A lot of what you see in the legal arguments. Uh, that I'm going to go back over pretty soon uh, that, you know, the U.S. women's team filed, uh, those are, you know, in some cases bear a faint resemblance to reality, but not too much. Uh, so 
there's that. And then there's basically just the assumption that anything U.S. soccer says is wrong and anything the U.S. women say uh, must be right. Well, the truth is that truth is the first casualty of war. And at this point, <laughs> it's war. It, it, yeah, it's clearly war. And I mean, I, I struggle anytime you know, we get an update in news like this because your casual followers, especially someone who's just gotten engaged with the national team during, during the world cup, they think it's as simple as why aren't you paying the women the same as the men? It's so much deeper and so much more complicated than that. But of course there's no way to make an easy headline or easy clickbait out of, Hey, it's a very complicated story. It's more just like women want to be paid the same as men. And and it just, it does such a disservice to the story when it's covered like that. Um, and then of course, even in, in situations where we know that the U S women are cherry picking the information that, that, that they're putting out there, we've seen so much evidence unrelated to this lawsuit that shows how poorly U.S. soccer has handled many different things, not just the U.S. women's national team, that it's really hard to give them the benefit of the doubt. But you're, you're right in that there are a couple of things here. One is that you have – one is that nuance – is always difficult. We're, we live in an era of clickbait, and you know, uh, U.S. soccer should pay the same rate for some aspects of the CBA, while acknowledging that they can't pay the same rate for World Cup bonuses. Yeah, already you've kind of run past what you can say on Twitter, let alone on a right. <laughs> right. right, way beyond and, the character limit. Right. And then the other part of it is you do have a lot of people who are new to the game. And, you know, this is what we deal with in MLS as well, where you have a lot of fans who have never experienced life without a men's soccer league. And so they think that, right, they seem to think that Major League Soccer came in and made things worse, you know, uh, even though there was no substantial men's professional soccer till MLS came in. MLS now has games where, you know, they've been, they've had a league average of more than 20,000 fans for a few years. And, you know, occasional games of about 70,000 in Atlanta. And yet they're the bad guy, which is not to say MLS does, does everything right, but it's the, the villain status that MLS has. It's as if, you know, the narrative that MLS is made up of NFL owners who um, who are keeping soccer down intentionally is, is still out there. And it, it's, it bears little resemblance to – it doesn't ring true for anyone who's been following the sport for more than 15 years, but there you go. And with women's soccer, each time you have people come in who are new to it and refuse to look in the history. And unfortunately, that includes a lot of the media. You know, it's to some extent, it's credentialed women's soccer media, but to a larger extent, it's, you know, columnists and pundits who are generalists who haven't followed this at all. And the basic facts are news to them. I mean, I had a conversation recently with a women's sports advocate who was surprised to learn that the women are on salary and the men are not. Now that's because <laughs> I was right. I was going to say it can be difficult to find the history and to find the documentation, but 
that's just inexcusable. Um, and especially when, because of the lawsuit, uh, what was that, 2016 before the Olympics or was it after the Olympics? Um, it was um, well before the Olympics. Oh, and, and this was a while where, where, where they released where we got to see every CBA ever, except of course now now the current one, where it's like, wow, that's that's actually public information now where it never was before. So in a way, there's right. no excuse not to see exactly how everybody got paid and compensated since the beginning of the U.S. Women's National Team CBA, which started in 2000. Yeah, that's so you can do all that. And that's why on my site, I have you know all these calculators that can run through some of those. And actually, I've posted, I think, most of the public CBAs. And of course, Jonathan Tannenwald has posted all the legal filings as well. And I, in the calculators that I have online at doersport.com, nice plug there, uh, go to the women's soccer uh, pay resource guide page. Um, Good. They, you know, I, I do have some figures from the current women's CBA. And, you know, the current women's CBA, it, it gets to the point of where there are very simple things that U.S. soccer could do to avoid these PR headaches. And, you know, one of them, perhaps the simplest, is just to make sure that a male player and a women and a women's player who are part of a team that let's say they beat the fourth ranked team in the world should they each get the same money for that game probably so or you'd have to have a very difficult time explaining you know, why one would be bigger than the other. I, maybe if it's a USA-Mexico game and there are 68,000 people there, uh, but then they also get an attendance bonus, so that should take care of that. So, you know, why shouldn't the money for friendlies be the same? I'm not sure who could make the case uh, for that, but, you know, even if you prorate the salaries that some players get uh, on the women's team, it's still not equal for those friendlies, and right, right, U.S. right, and U.S. soccer can afford that. You know, there there are some things where you can say, you know, if the if the U.S. women were to make the same bonus structure as has been offered to the as the men have in their CBA, which they will never never win, which is the subject of a book coming out in November. <laughs> no plug. Uh, they um, right, you know. If the men were to win the World Cup, their team bonus would be in the neighborhood of $25 million. So if the women won the World Cup, if you know, U.S. soccer would bring in $4 million of prize money, and if they had the same contract, they'd have to pay out $25 million. You know, so you're losing $20 million. Right. And yeah, U.S. soccer has a surplus, but suppose you do that every time the U.S. women win the World Cup. It's going to get more challenging for the women to win the World Cup, by the way. But you know, a semifinal performance, again, you'd have a, a ratio that's pretty far out of whack. So, um, but the friendlies, you wonder why, it, it, seems, it, it seems that the women have made the point recently, said, look, we're not looking for exactly the same bonus money. You know, we right. that's an issue um, because the only other option would be, you know, unless you want to have the federation, I call it slash or bath, you know, you could, if you want to have the same bonuses for men and women, you can either slash the men's, uh, which is not a bad idea. I mean, don't tell the men's players association I said that, but 
you know, suppose you were to take who says the prize money should all go to the should or most of it should go to the players. You know, men's players are already kind of rich. If you win the World Cup, you're going to get endorsement deals and better club contracts anyway. Why not plow that money back into the federation? So, you know, slashing the men's bonuses may not be the stupidest idea in the first place. But then the bath idea would be what I just described, $25 million of payout on forty on $4 million, you know. So right. you, can come up with, you can come up with fairly reasonable things. Like maybe you say, hey, we'll pay the same for the men reaching the quarterfinals, which is, you know, the best they've done since 1930 when only 13 teams entered. And then we'll pay you – know, we'll, so we'll pay the, the men for the quarterfinals the same as the women make for winning it. That's that's at least a good starting place for negotiation, um, and my guess is that both sides would actually accept that. So, and I I would say I know I'm skipping around a bit, but I'm surprised the mediation broke down. Um, me, me too, because, because I, I was I was impressed that they had agreed to it. That you know there was never a hint of a strike before the women's world cup because the last thing you want to do is you know, basically shoot, shoot the, the golden calf. That's a really awkward an analogy, but it's like, if they don't go to the world cup, they don't win. They don't have any bargaining power. And if us ever backs out of a world cup, it means any us team, men or women's is, is jeopardizing a future opportunity at the world cup. So I felt like things were progressing well. And, and also when, you know, we had hope so- solos lawyers say, I want to, I, you know, she wants to be part of this. And then the, the players association lawyer saying, no, we don't need you to be a part of this. Mm-hmm. It seemed like it was progressing very sensibly, but yeah, <laughs> but go on. But yeah. we, sh- we should address the lawyer spat there because it, it gives part of the recent history of how we got here. And that is that hope solo's lawyer is rich Nichols. Uh, Nichols was representing the U.S. women in 2016, was the one who brought up the possibility of a strike. And in fact, that brings up the one thing in the women's argument that I thought was ludicrous, where they uh, said that we didn't inform U.S. soccer that we were going to take legal action because of their preemptive legal action in 2016, which U.S. soccer filed because they were saying, no, you don't have the right to strike and we're going to have to go to court to enforce that. So I I don't see how the women could possibly complain about that. And the women eventually fired Rich Nichols, who was brought in at Hope Solo's insistence. And my understanding is that the Nichols poisoned the well so badly that that affected the negotiations even when he was gone. So, and perhaps the women didn't get as good a deal as they could have uh, if the tone had been better. So, and that I don't know if that necessarily means that they wanted to keep John Langle, who they had right. had for years and years. Right. But Nichols um, replaced John Langle, and he had been, I think John was their original uh, lawyer going back, I think, all the way to 2000. And that was kind of a, a surprise uh, when that when that change was made. Yeah, a, a long time. And you know, to be sure, the the last full 
full-scale collective bargaining agreement, which was in 2005, was when women's soccer was at its lowest point. There's no professional league. No one was going to games. The only exposure they got was when Heather Mitz would win the U.S. ESPN Page 2 contest for hottest athlete. And she kind of, you know, went along with it because that was the only exposure women's soccer was getting. Right. So... So and then they didn't fully negotiate in 2013. They came up with this memorandum of understanding to launch the NWSL, basically. That continued through you know, 2016 to Rich Nichols' chagrin. Uh, Nichols was also working with Jeff Kessler at that time. Kessler is now representing the U.S. women in this case. And so the funny thing is that um, – you know, now you have Nichols and Kessler fighting each other uh, because Nichols is representing Solo, who wants to get in with the, the women's team. And, of course, there have been some wild filings in that where, um, you know, Solo's, you know, Nichols is basically saying on Solo's behalf that the women are being duped and hoodwinked and they're, uh, they can't make a case without her. And the women are saying, you know, back off. And then Nichols filed all sorts of things, uh, seeking sanctions and so forth against the, the women's team. So you have this bizarre infighting uh, to keep Solo out of it, to keep Solo, and perhaps more specifically, Nichols out right. of this right. negotiation. And so, you know, given all that, but we still reach the point where. I'm surprised this mediation fell because there are such simple things that are not that costly. We mentioned the friendly pay. How much would that cost U.S. soccer over the years if they equaled out the friendly pay? Low seven figures, maybe. You know, probably you know probably a lot less than they could get if they turned around to one of these sponsors who's you know trying to shove money toward the women's national team, you know, U.S. soccer could say, hey, we're going to make the friendly pay equal. If you raise your, you know, um, you know, raise the money you're giving us per year, and they'd say, oh, yeah, we're happy to associate ourselves with that. And boom, you've equaled out the friendly pay, and then you're most of the way there. Um, and there are still complications because, of course, the men play a lot of World Cup qualifiers, and they there are substantial bonuses at play for that. The women do not. The women, you know, play friendlies where people can go see Alex Morgan and maybe get her autograph. And that's very different. So Yeah. It's it I, I now, hate to say it to people, but I, I feel like I'm saying it over and over. It's like it's apples and oranges and you know, mm-hmm. the pay should be equitable and that's not a bad word, but it's it's like you were saying that, you know, there's women sports advocates that aren't aware that the women are salaried with you know, they're guaranteed severance pay, they're guaranteed pay if they're injured, they're guaranteed maternity leave, which like in the case of Sydney LaRue was like 16 months paid maternity leave, mm-hmm. you know, like what job yeah. in the U.S. offers that, you know, it, it's like, it's, it's just so hard um, to compare. But bottom line, where are we now with the mediation breaking up? What happens now? Well, we probably go to court, and I'm going to go. I'm going to offer a big counter narrative here because okay. what's been playing out among Twitter again, among people who are fairly substantial, big, big wheel types in media, is that oh, U.S. soccer is going to really hate the discovery phase. The women are going to hate it more because <laughs> the 
because what Jeff Kessler filed, and bear in mind, Jeff Kessler is basically, depending on how you're counting, 0 for 2 or 0 for 3 against U.S. soccer, most notably uh, in the suit that was technically against Major League Soccer, but U.S. soccer was in it as well, uh, when he was representing the players on a lawsuit they had no chance of winning, and he appealed it, even though they had no chance of winning, and that delayed MLS forming its own union by four or five years. And he came out of that looking horrible. I mean, he made Sunil Gulati look sympathetic. That is, by some <laughs> reckonings, quite an accomplishment because he was badgering him over whether the Premier League in England was on the same level as the next tier down, which at the time was called the First Division. It's now the Championship. And right. he was basically... He basically thought he'd caught Sunil in some weird thing. Well, you said first division, so it, doesn't that mean it's the same as the Premier League? And this went on and on. And he basically had to apologize in court to Sunil Gulati. If you're apologizing in court to Sunil Gulati, you've done something horribly wrong. <laughs> and and Kessler uh, was involved with the, the motion, of course, to um, you know, U.S. soccer – one in 2016, they said you, we, your no-strike clause from the CBA has carried over to the Memorandum of Understanding. It is enforceable. He won, so U.S. Soccer won that argument. Kessler has been working with the NASL. Uh, that's gone nowhere. Right. And so here he is again. So you know, Kessler, bear in mind, a very successful sports lawyer. You want him in football. You want him in basketball. You want him in track and field. He's probably the guy you want soccer he every filing i've seen from him he doesn't get it you know it's uh yeah he doesn't understand he doesn't display an understanding of how you and i know the men's and women's games are different not yeah. you know they play 90 minutes it's the same field you know um you know, but the, develop, Morgan, the development of the game has, has been different, and by that I mean like the 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 men's game is so deeply rooted worldwide, where the women's game, even in this country, is still developing in terms of a pro league getting a foothold, and yeah, just the the history of the game and the number of people playing, and yeah, right. And so the funny thing is that the strongest argument U.S. soccer has is actually revenue. Because over yeah, and that's what they put out. They said, look, over this span of time, you know, the the salary data they gave was cherry picked. The revenue data was fairly solid, and that's one of the things where you run into again these media pundits who pay attention to women's soccer only, and they don't realize there is a large population in the U.S. that pays attention to men's soccer only. Right. They probably don't realize that the same day as the Women's World Cup final, that 60-some thousand people went and attended the um, the Gold Cup final between the U.S. and Mexico. They, I believe they sold out Soldier Field. And the most offensive part of all this, I have seen so many stories by so many sources saying the Women's World Cup final was higher rated than, than you know, pick a men's game. That is true only if you ignore the Spanish language broadcast, and that in this day and age is offensive. Right. We're talking right. about we're talking about immigration these days. We're talking about treatment of immigrants. You're going to deny the Spanish speaking audience. Some, in fact, actually, some of it, it's people who don't even speak Spanish that well, but they prefer those broadcasts. Right. You're going to tell those people they don't. You're going to tell these people they don't matter. 
<laughs> yeah, especially right. when, and and I even did this. I mean, my very first World Cup TV viewing experience, which was 1994, I just had to switch to the Spanish language channels where I couldn't understand what the announcers were saying because the American announcers were so annoying, and the camera kept pulling away from the action on the field. They would do like little picture and picture features and stuff. I'm like, no, I I want to watch the game. So that's no that that's. I think that's really damning. Yeah, it is. And it's one of those things where you start to look and honestly, you start to look around and say, wow, you know, uh, women's soccer in this country, still mostly an Anglo thing. And that's bad. That needs to change. And it's not going to change if a bunch of pundits are going around ignoring Spanish speakers. Yeah. So, I mean, shame on them. Shame on them. I mean it. Shame on them. So, and it's been a lot of people. And, um, and, it, you know, and it, point, it points yeah. to, um, I think, one of the challenges, and, and we can use this as a segue, one of the challenges that Kate Markraff as the new general manager, the first ever general manager of the U.S. Women's National Team, is facing, along with, of course, she has to pick a new head coach following, <laughs> following the head coach that won back-to-back Women's World Cup Cups. She's She has to pick youth national team coaches, you know, and you are coming into a year where we will have a U20 and a U17 Women's World Cup. Um, you've got an Olympics, you know, right around the corner, but also she's got to be thinking, I would I would want to believe about long-term bigger pipeline issues where we've developed in this country such an incredible pay-to-play structure which means our pipeline of players is only coming from a pretty narrow sliver of, of the population. And when you think of how large our country is and how diverse and all these immigrants, whether it's first generation, second generation, third generation, I mean, I mean, if, if you go back and look at the, the guys from the 1950 World Cup squad, you know, most of whom were from, I think, like St. Louis in New Jersey. Just all, Louis, yeah. yeah, yeah, just like you know, such a great, great history there. It's it's like, how can we ignore that? I mean, I I remember laughing every time during the 2018 World Cup where someone would say, "I can't believe Trinidad beat us. They only have this population, and we have this." And, and I'm just <laughs> like, like, um, you realize we're large. We have a larger population than every country in the World Cup. Like it's it's such an unhelpful comparison. It means nothing, especially when we've done so little to actively engage our full our full population, our full soccer playing population in the ability to be identified and and tested for the national team. Well, you summed up the book I have coming out in November. Oh, uh, I did. I didn't. I didn't <laughs> that, but that's good. That's awesome. Plug for Bo's book. Um, what's it right. called? And- what what's it's the called why the U.S. It's called why the U.S. men will never win the World Cup. Oh, you're going to get a lot of hate, but you should. Get I already lot, do. You should. You should get a lot of clicks <laughs> too. Um, but let's talk yeah. about let's let's move into the discussion of Kate Margraff as sure. U.S. national team GM because I thought that was a great choice as someone who I feel like she bridged two different generations of the U.S. women's national team being a very young 99er and then playing all the way through the 2008, uh, you know, Olympics played all three seasons, WSA and one season in WPS before she retired. And to me, most significantly, especially as a 99er, she wasn't someone 
who her career post soccer was just being a soccer celebrity. Right. right. So, so she's had to have real jobs. Um, and so she's, you know, she's put in day in, day out, all day kind of work. She's also stayed relevant to the game. And, you know, we all appreciate her very incisive commentary, whether it's been for NBC during the last Olympic cycle or currently with, with ESPN. So I, I think she's got the tools. Um, and that's going to be such a big challenge when no one's held this job before. It's such a new structure. I mean, even Ernie Stewart, who's now been promoted to what sporting director mm-hmm. above her and they're going to name a men's GM. It's like, all oh, that's new. They're creating these jobs. So you need somebody right. really special. And I feel that she is really special. Right. Well, the, the Mark Graff hire, you could certainly say, is one thing that U.S. soccer has certainly gotten right. Now, of course, there are the conspiracy theorists that we mentioned earlier who think that, you know, everyone who's been involved with U.S. soccer in the past, especially on the Athletes Council, uh, which Mark Graff has been, uh, is necessarily corrupt. And then I tweet back at them. I say, do you know anything about Kate Mark Graff? Yeah. And they don't respond <laughs> because yeah. they don't know. Because, <laughs> yeah, because – Mark Graff, you and I know her. She is not someone you're going to push around. You know, Carlos Cordero didn't just walk into a room and say, you have to vote for me, because she would respond with a hail of profanity. And, you know, and, you know, people take, take issue with the Athletes Council. What, the Athletes Council voted the way they did for a lot of reasons. And yeah. it wasn't, yeah, you know, it wasn't the reasons people think. It certainly wasn't, you know, who convinced Kate Markgraf or Heather O'Reilly or Shannon Botts, you know, to go along with all these things. Um, yeah. You know, why did they vote for Cordero? It wasn't to prop up MLS. It wasn't to prop up a U.S. soccer structure that some of them were actually still fighting. And, you know, now on the Athletes Council, believe you have a, Becky Sauerbrunn's on the Athletes Council now. So that's an interesting situation. But getting back to, to Mark Graff, yeah, she is someone who has the playing experience. She has the educational background. She's gone to grad school for years and years. Uh, she is one of the best soccer commentators out there. And if you look at her commentary, again, she will not be pushed around. She is a fearsome person. She will. Um, she does not suffer fools gladly. Well, and it's worth noting that the the pregnancy guarantee for the U.S. women's national team players they they you know it's loosely known as the Markraft rule uh, mm-hmm. that that she fought for the right to okay I was a contracted player I got pregnant I want the right to fight for my spot when I come back for for pregnancy and you know that's yeah. She, you know, she fought that fight. I mean, and what's interesting is that that was really the end of her career. She came back and decided, like, no, nah, I'm good. I'm done. But she was fighting for the right to be able to do that, not the guarantee that you'd be on the team, but the right to fight, to, to be called in and to get to fight for your spot again. Right. And the other thing about, you know, her, her parenthood is that um, I don't know if her kids play or how much they play. But it means that she at least, you know, when you become a parent, and I know this <laughs> firsthand, <laughs> you know, you start to see your friends and how they get involved. You know, your friends become mostly other parents. And right. 
you see how their kids go on. I know kids who, you know, dropped out of red soccer. I know kids who play for like the number one or two team in the state. So you see that wide variance. She will understand youth soccer. And that's important because I actually think the hire of the Nets coach might be the third most difficult thing on her agenda. Uh, one you we've already talked about is getting into Spanish-speaking communities. Right. Two is youth soccer, and you know the results of the that the U.S. youth soccer teams have had in recent years. Yes, they're not good. They're not good. And not so, at all. You know, right? And so, you know, this could easily be the U.S. women's last gasp as being, you know, the the best team in the tournament. Even here, they were a little bit lucky. Uh, you know, to uh, you know, they got a couple of questionable calls their way. But, but I, still I still think they were. Like- I still feel like this was a much more dominating performance than 2015. Except for the final, yeah. I mean, the, oh, yeah, obviously except 2015 for the final. final. Yeah, yeah. When you go back right. and, and look at tying Sweden in the group stage, barely eking by Nigeria, and the horrible, horrible yeah. round 16 game versus Colombia. Yeah, it's it's amazing how one amazing final will erase the previous six games. Um, but I feel right. like game to game the consistency was a whole different level from 2015. Yeah, I thought they were the best. They were the better team in every game, I would say, by a narrow margin over England, by a more convincing margin uh, in the other games. Uh, But, again, we go back to the fact that, look, we're not producing a lot of new players. And, you know, who were the young players who played significant time in this tournament? I mean, Abby Dahlkemper? And Lavelle, yeah, uh, oh, Lavelle, Lavelle, yeah. and so you, um, but Mallory Pugh didn't play much, and Tierna Davidson, but she's still, yeah. no, barely, but you still have to to consider Haran and Mewis as young players. It was the first World Cup for both. They're twenty five and twenty six, you know. Um, but no, I get I get your point that this this yeah. World Cup was very dependent on very experienced players. Yeah, in the U.S., they're they're young players. In most of the world, they would not be. Correct. Um, Correct. Because, um, in part, because a lot of European players go, you know, more directly professional, and that's much more the case now. I mean, this isn't the same as it was, what, fifteen some years ago when Kelly Smith came over to Seton Hall to play because it was her best option, and then actually stayed in the U.S. She was playing in the W League at one point. Uh, you know, basically no professional money there. I don't know how they worked things out so that she could stay and play and, you know, not go broke. Um, but, you know, that was the best option. Now, today, a Kelly Smith would do what a Lucy Bronze does, you know, maybe come over briefly and play for North Carolina, and then, boom, I'm off to Lyon to make a ton of money and to be one of the best five players in the world. So, right, and right. So good luck, Kate Markgraf. You're going to have to come up with something that keeps up with that. While there's all this infighting at the youth level, you have the Development Academy and the ECNL in their own turf war, uh, which is needless. And again, that's a problem U.S. soccer created and has not done anything to solve. We can't even get into that. So I would just recommend to people just Google ECNL. (laughs) What is that? There you go. National League. Um, and 
know, and, and, and look into that. But yeah, there's so many levels to what Kate Markraff's role is going to have to deal with, whether it's specifically in her job description or not. But I feel like we're at this just amazing juncture in the history of women's soccer in this country where, you know, like we're talking about the, you know, this amazing World Cup performance, but mostly on the backs of veterans who will not be active for the next cycle. You know, I, I can't imagine a 38-year-old, right. you know, or 41, 38-year-old Rapino or 41-year-old, you know, Carly Lloyd, um, you know, changing yeah, Rapino didn't even make it through this tournament. Things. Yeah, yes. you know, all, all the things that, yeah. that, that we're talking about. But, but I'm, you know, I want to say it again, I'm so excited that, that we, we as U.S. soccer, as, as U.S. soccer fans, that, that Kate Margraff was available to hire for something like this. Because when they first mentioned a couple of years ago that the idea that they wanted a men's GM and a women's GM, I'm like, ooh, who is that going to be? You know, and this just, it, it's the best choice. Yeah, it's, she's she's a tough person for a tough job. So, yeah, I think that's going to work out pretty well, as well as it possibly could. I don't know who they could have hired uh, who would be better for this uh, than she is. And, you know, and she also, you know, I think Ernie Stewart may learn pretty early on to tread lightly and let Kate do her thing. Ernie's, Ernie Stewart will have a lot of other responsibilities. I actually since learned that he has responsibility even for what they call the extended national teams, beach soccer, futsal, and Paralympics. Wow. So, yeah, so he actually has a job – at first, I thought, why in the world would you put Ernie Stewart right over Kate Markgraf? But he has more responsibility than that. So hopefully he will not come in and try to micromanage uh, what Kate's doing because I think uh, basically I think he just turned Kate loose and let her do, you know, let her do what she needs to do. And I think that'll I think that'll work. And, you know, U.S. soccer itself is going through some huge changes right now. They're losing a lot of employees. Uh you had the story where people were going on Glassdoor, you know, the, the where you right. view your employer. And, and, that's, an, and that's another them. thing everyone has to Google is U.S. soccer Glassdoor reviews because they are yeah. fascinating. Yeah. Also, Google Jay Burhalter because that's the story that's looming over everything, which is that Dan Flynn, the longtime CEO of U.S. soccer, is retiring. And the COO, I believe is his title, of U.S. soccer is Jay Burhalter. Yes, he is the brother of Greg Burhalter, the U.S. men's national team coach. Uh, the next word that I hear that's positive about Jay Burhalter will be the first. Uh, basically, and perhaps that's unfair. Perhaps it's just that people go to complain about him and that you don't you don't hear the positive things that he's done. But it's safe to say that there are a lot of people. Uh, you talk with who are just saying, if Burhalter becomes CEO, watch out. You know that that could yeah. be the apocalypse. Yeah. <laughs> especially, yeah, especially now it's that funny, his brother is. Yeah. What's that? It's funny, yeah. but it's not. Yeah. Right. Especially now that his brother is the men's national coach. And, you know, you could say, hey, all sorts of protocols were put in place and he won't have anything to say over what his brother does. It still doesn't look very good. And you have to ask, well, why else? You know, who else could have been CEO? I've also heard that uh, being CEO of U.S. soccer is not a popular position right now because they have so many legal battles going on. And bear in mind, some of the legal battles they're going through 
I would say are not their fault. The NASL made its own bed and refuses to lay in it. Um, there, are, there are some that are. That I don't understand how they wound up in court against the U.S. Soccer Foundation. That is something that you, is unbelievable that hasn't worked out. Uh, but it's a, it's a federation that has a lot of issues going on right now. Um, I, they're also sitting on a huge surplus. You know, no one's going to have to come in and start slashing, you know, slashing employees out of there. Uh, but, you know, would you want that job? I don't know. No. I mean, eight, <laughs> eight people wanted to be president or yeah. nine people wanted to be U.S. soccer president, even though, you know, it, it means you're going to get sued. I mean, uh, one of the lawsuits that came up, uh, was in the NASL case, at one point they were suing all the board members. Oh, so, geez. Yeah, congratulations, Lori Lindsay and uh, and Lisa Carnoy and everyone who is relatively new to the board. Um, you've got a thing where you can do all the fiduciary duty you want. Someone's still going to be mad at you. Well, and and I, that's probably a good place to wrap it up because I mean this topic is it's so, so depressing. Well, it's so depressing, but it's also it's so rich. We could go on forever. To where it's like. It's it's like unraveling this this endless sweater of you know we're we're just talking about the women's soccer issues but then you see how they're all tied to so many management issues with U.S. soccer historical cultural issues like it's just such an incredible fabric so like we mentioned there's all these things that the listeners use need to Google and and Bo I want to give you one more opportunity to plug your book that's coming out this, this fall, because I am, I'm definitely looking forward to read it. So, so go ahead. Give me one more plug. It'll be in November. It's called why the U S men will never win the world cup. There is a chapter on women's soccer in there asking basically if women will be affected by the same things that are affecting the men. The answer is somewhat. Um, and just to quickly wrap it around full circle, if U S soccer had managed to uh, work something out in mediation with U S women, it wouldn't have solved all the problems at U.S. soccer, but it would have been a very nice win for them. And we don't know why that was. We don't know who took the harder line. Uh, that's something we may never know. Uh, but that's the unfortunate thing for U.S. soccer. This could have been, you know, a, it could have given them a cushion against criticism, at least for a little while. And I think the discovery phase isn't going to be as embarrassing as some people say it is because people make up more things about them than are actually true. Uh, so, but this is <laughs> something that they needed and they're not getting it. Access to more documents. But anyway, Bo, thank yeah. you so much for taking the time to, to share your thoughts and share a lot of historical perspective to a lot of my listeners who I'm sure haven't heard some of this stuff before. <laughs> and I'm sure we'll be talking again this fall. Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Danielle Malagari, one of the NWSL broadcasters on the Yahoo streams. Um, and Danielle, you have been calling NWSL games like all the way back, like 2013, right? Yes, it was. Yes, 2013, I started with, with the Spirit. I was um, the color analyst for the Spirit for all of those years that we were on YouTube. So, yeah, I've been doing it since day one. Now, how did you end up working like that? I mean, how did that opportunity fall into your lap, or did you make that happen? Or it, somebody it actually say, really hey, did. you talk about soccer a lot. Let's get you on. Oh air. my god, that's actually exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> I, 
totally it just really fell in my lap so um back before the washington spirit and nwsl we had in kind of between the wps and the nwsl there for the w league there was a dc united women's team right and i played for them for two years um and when the nwsa came about and we were not allowed to really keep the dc united women's name Chris Hummer, who was um, the president or GM, I believe that's what his role was at the time, when it switched over um, to the NWSL, I was no longer playing. I was teaching full-time. And he came up um, to me, like, right before the season began, and he was like, hey, Luke, like, you've been with the organization from day one of DC United Women Days. Uh, we would still love to keep you around. What do you think about this? You love soccer. You really like to talk. Is this something you could do? And I was like, oh, my gosh, yes. Like, I've never had this opportunity before, and I never, ever thought I would have something like this kind of fall in my lap, but it just really, I kind of took took it and ran with it and have kind of made, I'm not going to say a career out of it because it's only what I do over the summer, but I kind of just took it from that on day one and really have self-taught. I didn't go to school for broadcasting at all, um, so I just took it then in 2013, and now you find me here doing a couple games every summer. Now, do you ever go back and and maybe listen or watch one of those uh, 2013 games and go, oh, my God, I'm so bad. Um, yes. <laughs> I mean, I'm, like, incredibly – I'm an incredibly hard on myself in all aspects of life ever it is. And I remember – even I just remember back on a, a, my first couple of games, uh, I was just so – fixated on on the ball and what was going on because I didn't want to miss anything. I didn't want to, you know, fail in telling something that was going on on the field. So I was so tuned in that I was like, I was so robotic. And I just didn't really allow my personality to show. And this was when YouTube allowed people to make comments like on the feed. Right, before they turn the comments off, right. Yes, I would go back into the game after just to see what people are saying so I could add a little bit of whatever they wanted into the broadcast. And it, they were not nice by any means. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, I could never be famous. Like, I'm just so glad I'm just this soccer coach that's broadcasting on YouTube. But yeah, I, I kind of took away a lot of things from my earlier days and trying to push that out um, from my broadcasting now and hoping that I've just continued to get better each year. But what I find interesting is, is how we've, you know, we've slowly progressed with these streams, you know, so mm-hmm. when you started in 2013 and, you know, and then Dash in 2014, all the streams, you know, we're doing on site, right? And each mm-hmm. club got to do things their own way and do graphics or not do graphics, show the anthem or not show the anthem, you know, of different styles. And Definitely, there was something valuable about that. Like, you know, I like that the Houston broadcast was the Houston broadcast. You know, if you're mm-hmm. watching with Thorns, you knew it was a Thorns broadcast. Um, yeah. But then we also struggled with, you know, like at, at, at Boston, especially when they were in um, Jordan Field at the end, like you couldn't see the corners. You know. Oh yeah. Yep. Every <laughs> everything was. No, it was. It, it was. And sometimes, you know, even with in the Spirit days when we were. Um, we would call it the roof booth because Michael Minnick and I would um, stand on top of kind of the makeshift um, press box that they have at the Maryland Soccer Plex. You know, sometimes we would show up and some of the wires were eaten through by by mice or rats or something like that. Oh, wow. So 
we were getting that fixed like minutes before we were going on the air and we were unsure of even if we were able to get on the air so we would just start and not know if it was live right <laughs> so we would just go and talk because we're like well this is what we're here to do and um so we were unsure of even if it was going on at, at the at the right time or at its kickoff once kickoff started if the broadcast was even going so every i think everybody struggled when it was at the separate locations with like the minor details um but obviously yeah. the ones with the bigger like the portland and houston um I mean, Utah Rollers right now, obviously, they have that great facility that they're in. Yeah. The better facilities had just the better streams where everything at the Spirit was total makeshift. Um, And we were just on top, literally on top of a trailer roof, (laughs) Um, which, you know, the camera still these days are are standing or sitting up there as well. But it was total makeshift and we made it work. And um, as the years went on, we got so much better into that. But, yeah, every little team had, had a little bit of issues no matter what. And, and it's, I think the, the Plex is such a gorgeous field, you know, mm-hmm. beautiful 5,000 seater with that, you know, berm at the one end for seating, but it's, mm-hmm. it's not set up for the infrastructure of, you know, a broadcast booth and locker rooms that players can get to directly from the field and all that kind of yeah. stuff. And it's, it's like, yeah. you know, of course the average fan doesn't need to worry about that, but it's like, but once you start working in that kind of stuff, you realize like, wow, this is, you know, so problematic and you're, and you're doing things by just, you know, whatever, whatever way you can. Oh yeah. And, and they make it work and yeah. And they totally make it work. And I know this year, um, the spirit has done a great job of putting a little bit more money into that the player experience for them, you know, upgrading the locker rooms and doing different things at the soccer plex. But it is a great facility. But when it was built back in, gosh, early 2000s, I think it was like, because I'm from Maryland and I literally live like 10 or 15 minutes from there when I was a kid. And that was really built for the youth soccer organizations in those right. area, that area. You know, every single week, those fields, I believe there's like 25 fields. Those are just loaded and loaded with work games, pro, um, you know, obviously the pro game, uh, any sort of ECNL, yay, you name it, every single league club, they play there. And that was what it was built for originally. And when when State Cup was happening, that's where all of the championship games were played. So it was really focused on just putting so much more money into the youth program mm-hmm. that when the WPS came around and the Freedom played there and the extra seats were added there on, on the far side and then now with the Spirit, um, playing there they're really starting to put more money into it and, and making it a real pro setting yeah and and it's nice to see something like that evolve over time mm-hmm. you know um, because mm-hmm. I, I like that the spirit is doing some games at, at Audi Field but a full jump to Audi Field might not be practical you know right, right. Away. and yeah and even I mean they did one you know I think they did one game there last year, two games this year. So I think obviously we're seeing these huge crowds now after the World Cup at, you know, Chicago and Portland just setting the record, which is awesome. Um, hopefully every year maybe they can add a couple of games. So we'll see. I, I, I mean, I want to say the game last year at Audi Silver the Spirit was close to 8,000 um, yes. people there, yeah. which was awesome. But now I think they're already over like 10,000 tickets sold and we're still a couple of weeks away. So, and I believe only already one of the sides is already sold out. So I oh, think that's so wonderful general, here. Yeah. And I think it's always scary making that jump, but it is so accessible down in the city with the Metro 
public transportation and yes, right. a little bit of a drive for those of us that are used to being at, at our Boyd's Maryland Soccerplex, but it's also just the fan experience as well. Being in Audi Field is awesome. Um, and, and even going there for DC United games is so great um, that hopefully these next two games there, um, I think the first one is August 24th with the Spirit. Hopefully that game will just really bring more people from all different walks of life in to see women's soccer. So I think it's really great they're having those two games there this season. Now, having been part of the league four years ago, I mean, you know, part of the Spirit group and calling the games and paying attention mm-hmm. to and then now uh, following another World Cup win, how do you see a difference in in this World Cup bump, as as we've been calling it, compared to four years ago? I, I really truly think the players now are way more accessible um, in regards to like social media. So I think way more people that have no idea, have nothing to do with women's soccer can access these athletes social media and really see the personalities on and off the field. So I think that really helped grow uh, this World Cup. I mean, obviously Twitter's been around for some time now, but in 2011 and 2015, they, I don't think they were as active as they are now, and especially with some of their sponsorships uh, coming out and then promoting all these different things. I think they've just become so much more in the public eye, which is really wanting pe- making people want to come to these games. And, you know, I think over the course of the World Cup and all the controversy that surrounded the U.S. Women's National Team with, um, uh, you know, the celebrations in the Thailand game and then the, the White House stuff. Obviously, that was, was a big controversy and tons of people talked about it. But it, I was watching these games being like, no press is bad press at this point. You know, let's get yeah, these people's names exactly. out here. I, I thought it was huge. And people wanted to complain and, and do it, say whatever they wanted to say. But I'm like, this is awesome. This is putting you know, Megan Rapinoe's face out there. They're putting Alex Morgan's face out there with her celebration with the teacup. Whatever. It is what it is. <laughs> it's creating a name for women's soccer and that these athletes deserve to be seen as well. And I think they did a really good job. Whether it was their plan or not, I don't know. But I think yeah. they did a great job at, at just making bigger names for themselves. You know, I've been in the soccer world for my whole entire life, so I already know all of their names. Uh, it, it just made <laughs> people that probably don't know them make that made them aware of who these athletes were right if your average person is is talking about whether or not they you know what their opinion is on the celebrations or what their opinion is on the mm-hmm. team it's like you've reached a level of relevancy that you yeah. didn't have, you didn't have before oh yeah i mean there are so many news outlets that were talking about it and i'm like what have you ever touched on women's soccer before <laughs> you know even sitting at a bar when I was watching some of the U.S. games and people talking about it and watching it and like average fans that are only around every four years saying things that were a lot of times not correct but I'm like hey it doesn't matter you're sitting in the same bar as I am watching the same game so this is truly exciting. And and the sad the sad thing is is that that really is the goal if you're growing any sport is you want uninformed people talking about your sport a lot. <laughs> right. Oh, absolutely. And I think I think there was such a major push this year for that. And uh, there were so many different watch parties. And I think Fox did a really good job in really advertising it. And I think there was a ton of advertisements leading up to it that really allowed everyone to know when this was happening. I mean, even kind of like the controversy of having the World Cup final on the same day as the Gold Cup yeah. final. 
that was yeah. still a decent amount of press. Um, you know, people were talking about it. So I think it was it was really well done this year, and, and I think it's really going to hopefully this push continues and really helps to add more people into the stands for the NWSL. Well, and, and I like that the advertising leading up to the World Cup, and, and I think this did build, obviously, off of, off of 2015, the success of 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, the ads didn't seem so Alex Morgan-centric as they seemed to me in 2015, where it seemed like every sponsor was really just using Alex or possibly Abby. Where this, like, right. the, the Hulu ad and the Visa ad were team ads, Oh yeah, and, and I'm like, eighty France was in them, you know. Yeah. And she didn't really obviously play at all, being the being a, a backup goalkeeper. But having those players in, um, I think was great. And you're totally right; it wasn't just Alex Morgan, Abby Wambach thing, or Megan Rapinoe. I think yeah. it was really neat that all of these other. Granted, I did hear the Hulu ad and the Visa ad so many times. I was like, oh my gosh, I can like I know. this and like. like more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I already have a visa card. You don't need to tell me on it anymore. And I already have a visa. But um, we, you know, they did a really good job at putting all all faces out there. Rose of MLP, all of them. Toby was even, I think she's the one at the end of the Hulu that was like Hulu or whatever she said at yeah. the end of that ad. Yeah. They did a good job at putting everybody's face out there. Yeah. Well, and, and speaking of um, World Cup champs, um, I, I was tickled to learn that your coach from college was one mm-hmm. of the was one of the 91 Women's World Cup champions, yep. Shannon Higgins. So, yeah, so talk, about, Higgins, talk about that. I mean, did you know when you were in college who she was? Oh, yeah, 100 percent. Absolutely. Um, obviously, in 1991, I think I was in um, but doesn't mean I didn't watch the games. Uh-huh. I absolutely knew who she was. She actually ran camps in this area. I live in Maryland. I went to the University of Maryland. Um, you know, I went to her camps when I was younger. So I actually was well aware of who she was um, when I was a kid. So oh, when cool. she took the job, I believe she came from GW and then went over to Maryland. Um, I obviously was recruited by her and recruited by her assistant coaches. Um so I, I was very well aware of who she was and, and knew the type of person that she was. And when we would play down at UNC all those years, um, there was one time, I believe, like my freshman or sophomore year, Anson took us on like a tour of the athletic center at UNC. Actually, it was probably the soccer center at Fetcher uh, Field. I think that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, he took us and showed us like the retired jersey of Shannon Higgins. I'm like, oh, my God, this is really cool. And he was like, yeah, if you look busy, right. there might be like a mustard staying on it we're like well just like to eat just like the rest of us so it was really really neat having kind of her as a coach with, with the history that she had in the game and are you still coaching I mean you you ended up coaching after college yes yeah I did it's kind of again like fell in my lap obviously I played for all those years but I didn't really think coaching was going to be my path um at, at all I went to school for something completely different um, and then when I started doing that, I was like, yeah, no, this isn't for me. I miss soccer. Um, and I, I'm a physical education teacher right now, but I'm a varsity soccer coach. I coach club soccer as well. Um, and I, re- I remember like in college, one of my assistant coaches, I think I was injured. I was standing on the sideline and I was yelling at practice, saying something. And I don't even remember what I was saying. And my coach came up to me. She was like, you know, you, you'd make a good coach someday. And I was like, really? I'm just trying to be the best cheerleader I can be right now while I'm sitting here in a walking boot. Um, so like that kind of always stuck in my head. And 
then I had a former coach reach out to me once I was done playing professionally. Um, and I was just like, yeah, okay, like, let's do this. I like kids. I'm still active. Let's see, figure this out. And, you know, the rest is history. Um, and it's been a part of my life since I graduated. Now, do you have any of your students ask you, like, what do I need to do to, you know, get a great scholarship? Or what do I need to do if I want to play in the NWSL or for the U.S. national team? I do. Um, on my club team, I have some definitely some players that are interested in playing collegiately. I think they're at a point, I coach eight, seven, and 18-year-olds right now. Um, some of them are like, I don't even know if I want to play beyond college, but that's like my first goal. Um, uh-huh. I, I do have them. And, um, you know, my biggest thing is always, you guys, you have to make a sacrifice. You have to figure out what you want in life. And if that's what it is, like, you got to go for it. And you got to sacrifice being a teenager. Sometimes you got to go to bed at 10 o'clock on a, on a Friday, instead of going to the party, <laughs> you got to wake up and go to a private training session on the weekend instead of, you know, sitting on the couch watching TV. So I definitely do have those types of kids that have those ambitions. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm there to support them um, along the way, wherever they want, whether it's me contacting coaches or me breaking up film to create a highlight. Um, so I, I definitely have those types of kids that ask about doing that. Well, and that area, you know, Northern Virginia, Maryland, D.C., I mean, mm-hmm. so many great players uh, have, have have come out of there. I mean, you, you, oh, know, yeah. you just look at, uh, you know, Andy Sullivan, Allie mm-hmm. Krieger. I mean, what is it about that area? I mean, are, are like the clubs just have such a rich history or what, what mm-hmm. would you say is the strength of that that region? Well, it, there is a rich history. So McLean Soccer Club, so I actually have known Andy Sullivan for a long time. She, well, we played on DC United Women together. So uh-huh. when she, when I first started coaching in Bethesda Soccer Club, she was playing in Bethesda Soccer Club. I think she was like 12 or 13. And so she's like a Northern Virginia girl. And, but in Bethesda was, you know, Montgomery County, Maryland. So her high school season was opposite of Maryland kids. So when Maryland kids were in high school soccer, she would not be. So she would come up and do private trainings on the fields that all of us were training at um, for our club. And so she was the type of kid that always put in that extra work, came to do, her club coach was maybe training his other team, but she would come and still do stuff on the sideline with him. So she was super dedicated. So she's somebody I'm like, she grew up in this area. If she did it, you can do it sort of thing. But there are so many clubs that are so rich with their history. McLean Soccer Club, Bethesda Soccer Club, and Maryland United out in kind of like Eastern Maryland um, have so many strong ties to this area in regards to developing good teams that a lot of their players just flock there. And they have good coaches. They have stable coaches that have been there year after year that are all about the development. So I would say um, I, I think just the dedication of the club coaches in the area have really kind of allowed the players in this area to get um, to go to, to bigger schools. I have a kid right now that plays for um, me on my high school team who plays for McLean, who's going to be a junior and she already committed to Georgetown. So there's, I mean, that's pretty legit program to be yeah. uh, going to um, as only a junior, but she has kind of like the sky's the limit for her. Um, but she's been with McLean since I would say 13 years old and she's done nothing but improve every single year. Well, and I always think it's great when you have players from a local area come and play for that, uh, that area's NWSL team. You know, we've seen a mm-hmm. lot, a lot of Chicago players stay in Chicago. You know, Rory Dane's mm-hmm. been a 
part about drafting locals. We're kind of seeing some of that, um, you know, in, in DC as, as well. Mm-hmm. Last question for you. Um, just okay. some thoughts on, on the Washington spirit this season. I mean, I know you don't get to call all their games like you used mm-hmm. to, but any thoughts on the spirit? I mean, I, I have had conversations with many of their front office um, staff members. And, you know, I, I know this is like total cliche, but they're like focusing like all in, like everybody's all into the goal of this, of this team. And even Richie Burke, it's so funny. Like I've known Richie Burke since I was a kid too. Um, I played against him when I was a kid. And he actually, um, he actually coached at the high school that I'm now coaching at. So he stepped down and then I took the job over from him. So okay, that's funny. Him <laughs> yeah, I know. I could go on and on about all of the connections I have in the BC area and NWSL. It's, it's really cr- quite crazy. But, um, yeah, so he, even speaking with him, I'm like, so, you know, what do you, what's the environment you're creating? He's like, we're here to win. If you don't want to be here to win and get better, like, get out of here sort of thing. Not in those ways, but not in those words but that's kind yeah. of I, I think of him saying it like this is what we're here to do and we want to make this the best end of cell club we possibly can and obviously every team thinks like that but I have a little bit more insight to kind of what they're doing differently this year than what they've done in years past what makes the bigger names what makes Roosevelt and Mel Pugh and Anderson want to stay here and continue to play I think they're really putting everything into making it not just the fan experience for all of us that are there to watch this great product, but also the player experience and making it someplace that they leave and like, wow, like that's top notch. And and everybody is is all in from their front office to their president, their CEO, um, you you know, to the last player that doesn't play as many, as many minutes. I think everybody's all on the same page on on the true focus of the club this year. And each club is going to have their own challenges, whether it's venue related, market related. Mm-hmm past history, player movement, whatever. So yeah, I think, mm-hmm. you know, they do all have that goal. We want to be the best club we can be, but it doesn't mean being what another club is. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and there's definitely the financial bumps that some of the other clubs have that may be related, that may be connected with the MLS team. That's way different than what, you know, a, a, the Washington spirit may have or what sky blue has or something like that. So um, yeah, they're all going to run into their little, little bumps in the road but and I think sometimes in in from a fan perspective and not from a commentator perspective it's the bumps in the roads are the losing season <laughs> okay so let's get over those bumps and focus on how we can make this into a winning season um and obviously spirit went from kind of the bottom last year to the top and then are in the middle of the pack at this point and they've kind of been up and down this season but I, you can just truly feel um, that they want to put that behind them and just focus on the future and how they can continue to develop the team and the club. Well, Danielle, thank you so much for taking the time to to share your thoughts on, of course, the spirit and sure. the World Cup bump. And, and it's kind of always nice to, to share stories with someone who remembers what it was like in those YouTube days. Oh, gosh, yes. Yes, it was way different now. I, I think we're steps in the right direction for sure. Right, time to wrap it up with the back four. 
The second edition of the International Champions Cup for Women kicked off this week in North Carolina with the courage edging Manchester City women 2-1 and then Lyon defeating Atletico Madrid 1-0. So this Sunday, the third place game between Man City and Atletico Madrid will air live on ESPN News at 5 p.m. Eastern. And then the final between Lyon and the North Carolina Courage will air live on ESPN2 at 7.30 p.m. Eastern, which means Sunday there's three women's games on uh, ESPN on national TV because, of course, you have Sky Blue and uh, Rain FC playing at Red Bull Arena, no less, earlier in the day on ESPN News. And speaking of North Carolina, tickets for the NWSL Championship game are on sale now at nwslsoccer.com slash championship. That game will be played Sunday, October 27th. And I am trying to work out the details for a women's soccer nerd event the day before, so please stay tuned. Uh, Note that the semifinals will be played the weekend before, and of course those will be hosted by the number one and number two seeds in the final standings. And, of course, we have two Women's World Cup Victory Tour dates coming up soon in the August-September FIFA window, uh, which means other than uh, there's, I think there's only one NWSL game scheduled in that window. For the most part, your NWSL teams are not affected by these Victory Tour games. The U.S. women will face Portugal on August 29th in Philly, and then on September 3rd in Minneapolis. The game in Philly has already sold more than 40,000 tickets, so could set a new record for U.S. Women's national team friendly at home. Uh, The record was set in 2015 uh, when Pittsburgh had more than 44,000 people watching a a game that August following the Women's World Cup. And the game in Philly will air live on Fox Sports 1, and then the Minneapolis game will be on ESPN 2. For more information about either of those games, just check out ussoccer.com. And last but not least, um, if you haven't checked it out already, be sure to follow my new Twitter handle, my new additional Twitter handle, WosoMerch. I'm listing all kinds of great stuff that's out there, whether it's apparel, tickets, gear, collectibles, whatever. And if you have any suggestions of something I should tweet, don't fail to, to reach out and let me know. And of course, have to give a plug for my favorite piece of Woso merch, and that would be my Keeper Notes Almanac. Uh, it's a printed 320-page book of all the data from the first six seasons of NWSL. And yes, by the end of the year, there will be a new one. So you can purchase that at KeeperNotes.com. You can purchase the print version, the PDF version, or a combo of both. All right, that's it for this episode of the Mix Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to everyone who has recommended this to a friend or tweeted about it. I appreciate that. And many thanks, as always, to Sean for being so patient with me when I'm late with my episodes and for putting this all together. But now she's anybody's girl.